We just sang a song called Build My Life. I just want to read some of the words to that. Thank you, worship team, for your work and leading us in worship. And so many of the songs today really tied into our text. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. And I love that last phrase, we live for you. And that's the phrase we want to key in on this morning because Jesus is going to challenge us with the question, do we live for him? Is our life centered and ordered around him? And we know that in this world, in this culture, that's a really difficult thing to do, right? In fact, an an example of that and a little bit of our, our cultural values, just a few years ago, Jeff Miller, an independent businessman from Rogers Park, Illinois, he clinched his third ultimate couch potato title. Now, there's a competition I have a chance in. <laughs> and um, ESPN Zone in Chicago puts this on, and you have to, to sit in a, in a recliner chair. They probably make it nice and comfy. And then they get to control the remote. They put whatever sports they want on TV, and you have to stay awake. And it's a competition for how long you can stay awake as a couch potato. The stay awake, my heart, might be hard. Um, and, and they do give you like, like three bathroom breaks a day. I'm like, ugh. Um, and then every hour you get a five-minute stretch break. And so the, you know, they're very kind. But he clinched three straight. He said it's all about determination. Right. He watched TV sports programming. He won by going 72 straight sleepless hours. He's believed to have broken the world record. I didn't know we had a record about this. Um, he, sat on a, he's, he first sat his backside down at 10 a.m. on New Year's Day and finally stood up exactly three days later. But he gives some tips. You learn some tricks after competing in a few of these. One, take interest in meaningless sporting events to keep yourself awake. Two, eat and drink lightly between the scheduled bathroom breaks. I can, I can understand that. But all is not lost. His, his superior sluggishness earned him a new recliner a $1,000 gift card toward the purchase of a television, money for one year of his cable satellite bills, and $1,000 in ESPN's own credit, and the ultimate couch potato trophy. We are a culture that values relaxing and values self and just doing whatever you want to do. And that's what we are fighting when we talk about do we live for Christ? Because there's a temptation to relax and coast in our Christianity. Hey, I got my fire insurance. I I believe in Jesus. I'm going to heaven. Now I'm good. I can do whatever I want. And actually, I can live with more peace because my future is secure. And that's not why God saves us. And that's not what He wants for us. And so today, we're going to see Jesus really confront what we should do, how we should act while we are waiting for His return. In Luke, if you remember, we just started last week part three of of Luke, the victory of the king, if if we were doing a trilogy. And it's the the setting where Jesus now is going to head to Jerusalem and we're going to see Passion Week where he is crucified and then, praise God, on the third day rises from the dead and shows victory over sin. And last week they were at the bottom of the mountain looking up to Jerusalem and Jericho and he, he deals with a couple things. Today he's in Jericho just about to start up the mountain but we are on our way to Jesus paying for our sins. And this is an exciting part of Luke. But Jesus wants to deal with some things 
while he's here. And he wants to set the, the appropriate stage and set an appropriate mindset for understanding what he's about to do. And so today we'll be in Luke chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Luke 19, 11 to 27. We're going to talk about how not to win a couch potato contest in our Christianity. Luke chapter 19, 11 to 27. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under a seat right around you. Um, a hardcover ESV Bible. We'd love for you to take that. Follow along this morning to know God's Word and that this is from God's Word. And if you don't have one at home, please take that home so you have God's Word. Luke chapter 19, 11 to 27. And this is called the parable of the ten minas. And if we had to summarize the whole morning, I'll just give you this right from the start. A true disciple will responsibly use the gifts and opportunities God has given. A true disciple will responsibly use the gifts and opportunities God has given. While we are waiting for Christ to return, we are called to be faithful. We're called to stay busy, but to stay busy with the right things in the in-between. And so we come to the parable, verse 11, and verse 11 really introduces the purpose of the, of the parable. As they heard these things, and if you remember in verse 10, and whenever you see a phrase like, as they did this, or as they heard it, it's good to look back and see where we're coming from. In verse 10, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So he gave the purpose of his ministry. Now, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. And then catch this. He gives the reason, one of the reasons for the parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And so they still have this mindset with the messianic expectations that Jesus is going to come and he's going to destroy the Romans and he's going to destroy the Jews that are oppressing them and he's going to set up his kingdom of peace and prosperity right then and there. And you can't blame them because in, in the Old Testament, the prophecies really lead you that direction because that still is coming. We're looking forward to that part of the kingdom. But now they have seen all these miracles specific miracles that tied to the Isaiah prophecy of who the Messiah was. And, and they've seen Jesus work. He now has accepted the title of Messiah. We saw that last week. And so they're seeing a progression here. And now, hey, we're going up the mountain. That's Jerusalem up there. That's the capital. That's where the king is. Let's do this. I, I can relate with that. I can see what they were thinking. And so Jesus is trying to to temper or correct those expectations. Yes, I'm the son of David. Yes, Passover is coming. It would be the perfect time, but I have a better plan. I have a better plan. It, it, it would be like, and what Jesus does here is he, as he counters these expectations, it would be like if you went and saw Star Wars Episode Nine, which comes out next year, right? And some of us, uh, unnamed, might be there opening night. And we're sitting there and we get in the theater and we wait for the scroll to come, right? It's not Star Wars without the scroll. And, and, and the scroll comes and people are like, yeah! And at the end of the scroll it says, and the movie will be out in six months. And the screen goes black. That's a little bit of what Jesus is going to do for the disciples. The, the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet here. And, and, and Jim talked about that a few weeks ago, that the kingdom is already here in our hearts and in the reign and rule in our lives, but there is coming a day when Jesus is going to come and wipe out sin and have complete victory and set up an earthly kingdom that is perfect. And we look forward to that. But so Jesus says, I'm going to tell this parable to help these expectations. 
The purpose of the parable is to diffuse expectations that the full earthly kingdom was coming now and to instruct how we are to act while waiting for Jesus' return. So he says, it's going to be a gap. We're going to wait, but this is how I want you to act. And so Jesus says, this is the purpose for this parable. Then he sets the setting and he sets the scene as, as he's doing before he gets really into the parable in verses 12 and 13. And this is where he talks about this gap. There's going to be a gap between the cross and the second coming when Jesus victoriously sets up his kingdom. And we see that starting in verse 12. And he said, therefore, and he sets the scene, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And we might read that and say, well, that's a little weird, but that he is taking headlines out of the, the front page of the news scroll or news tablet, whatever they had. And he's taking something from the front page because they had already seen King Herod and then King Herod's son have to go to Rome to get their title of king, to get their kingdom. And so what would happen is you'd have these rulers of the, the outlying provinces in Rome, but they didn't automatically rise to power. They would have to go travel, make the trip to Rome, and petition for the title of kingship to rule this kingdom. And, and Herod had already done that, and he had gone and was made king. He got the, the title of king, Herod the Great. His sons, after he died, was parceled out, and they had to go to Rome. And we'll talk about what happened with one of his sons in a minute here, because Jesus is going to continue to rip headlines off the front page. But think about what this means. A nobleman went to a far country. Right from the start, Jesus is saying, there's going to be a gap. There's going to be some time here, right? I'm going to go away for a while. I'm going to go away, and I'm going to receive the kingdom in full, and I'll be coming back eventually. And so he begins to counter this expectation that Jesus is coming in might and that he's coming with an army to take out Rome. He goes on and says, calling ten of his servants, so the nobleman's going away, calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business till I come. So Jesus is a great storyteller, and and this nobleman has all kinds of businesses and all kinds of things happening. He brings his servants together and says, I'm going to be gone a while. Take care of things. You need to be doing my work about my business. And he gives them 10 minas, and that's one mina each. And a mina, you you probably don't have one in your wallet, but it was about three months of wages. And so you can figure that out today if you think of your wages, about three months wages. And, And actually... For the scope of the kingdom, of, of the, the empire this guy probably had, that probably wasn't a lot. Now, if you gave me three months' wages and said, hey, have fun, that'd be pretty cool. Might be able to get a Disneyland pass. But, um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but he said, here's three months' wages each. I want you to take care of whose business? My business while I'm gone. And he hands off the business. All are given the same. In fact, this is probably a different parable from Matthew. In Matthew, we have the parable of the talents, and the setting is different. The story is different. In that case, different amounts of money were given to each of them. The lesson is different. In this case, they're all given the same because we as believers are all given the same responsibility. We are all given the gospel and the power of the gospel. And while Jesus is gone, we are all told to be about his business and about his work. And so Jesus sets the scene. There's going to be a gap. Nobleman's away. 
Servants are given a task. Now what will they do? How will they handle it? One other thing I, I, I want to call attention to in verse 13. So he gave the ten minas and said to them, engage in business. Do you catch the last three words? I love these three words. It, there's a little nugget in there. Until I come. What does that mean? What's the promise there? He's coming back, right? He's coming back. And, and so it's like, if it wasn't if I come. No, it's until I come. And I love little nuggets like that in Scripture because Jesus is saying, no, I'm coming back. This is a sure, th- a sure thing. And so you can expect it. There's also a little bit of accountability with that. You know, mom and dad told stories of my parents, but mom and dad you know, leave for a while and say, these five things need to get done. And... And we'll be back to check. Oh, man. But the fact that they're coming back to check gives accountability. And, and it, it was always better with Dad if I didn't know what time he was coming back. But, um, because then I would work sooner. Um, but that gave some accountability. And Jesus is saying, until I come. What a wonderful promise. So he hands off his mission and his purpose to his disciples, to all his disciples until he returns to seek and to save, to make disciples, the great commission. And the question is, what will they do with the talents? Or not to mean us. What will they do with what God, the nobleman, has given to them? And we see three responses in the, the parable and the meat of the parable now comes starting at verse 14. The first response is some will reject Jesus' kingship. Some will reject Jesus' kingship. And if you think of the parable and the nobleman, some just don't want him to be king. They're like, no. And, and so in verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. Now again, this is right out of the, the headlines. Herod the Great, one of his son, Archelaus, was given half the kingdom. And one of the things Archelaus did is he tried to show how strong he was, how powerful he was. And early on at a Passover, he felt that some of the Jews were rebelling and he killed 3,000 of them and piled their bodies up. And so when Archelaus now makes this trip to Rome to receive the kingdom, the Jews send a delegation and they get some people together to go after him. And actually even some of his own family that he had brought to plead his case turned against him. And to Rome, they said, no, he's not worthy. Now, Rome took sort of the easy way out. They, they left him in charge of the, the kingdom, but they didn't give him the title king. And so that, that's just a wimpy solution. But So this is all really fresh for them. Um, Josephus records, he gave half the kingdom to Archelaus with the title ethnarch, promising moreover to make him king should he prove his deserts. But he didn't. And so he was never made king. Jesus is using that as an example. But we know that's not the kind of king Jesus is. He's the perfect king that offers good to his people. He offers a righteous, just kingdom. And people still rebel. People still will not take it. So this Jesus is addressing the class of people that hear the gospel and hear Jesus' claims and say, nope, not me. I, I want nothing to do with this. And they sent a delegation. Now we know in verse 15 that it didn't work because right in the next verse, when he returned, having received the kingdom, because nothing we can do can stop Jesus' kingdom. He is coming back. Praise God. But if we don't know him, that should, should generate a little bit of fear, a little bit of soberness in our heart. 
In your notes, I have the result. What's the result? On this one, you're going to have to wait till verse 27. You have to wait till the end. Um, so Jesus saves the result for this group until the end because it's, it's quite sobering. And he moves on to the second group of people. And the second response, some will faithfully do the master's work. In verses 15 through 19. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had been how they had been doing business, what they had gained by doing business. And so we see the accountability here. And, and this matches what we see in Scripture, that every one of us will appear before God and have to give an account of all of our deeds while we're here on earth. Every one of us. And so that day's coming, and Jesus is just using that in his story, that this is coming because we'll all be held accountable for what we've done in this body. And so he brings all the servants together. And he's only going to talk about three of them, but I'm sure all ten came. And the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Now, those of you that are really good at math or into business and banking, that is a thousand percent return on the investment. That is nice. That is a servant that has done well in whatever amount of time this is, thousand percent increase. And so we see the result in he being the nobleman representing Jesus. He said to him, well done, good servant. Oh, to hear that. Well done, good servant. Because you have faithful in a very little, you will have authority over ten cities. And he said, you were, you were faithful with one little mina. And you turned it into ten, a thousand percent increase. And because you have proven that you will be about my business, that you will be concerned about my business, I'm going to give you ten cities to rule over. Now, now, we have to be careful. This is a parable. It's not saying that we all get a certain number of cities. It's an illustration to show increased responsibility. It's an illustration to show that when we're faithful, God can trust us with more. That makes sense, right? When we're faithful, he will trust us with more. And that's true today. When we're faithful to be about what he wants us to be about, he will trust us with more spiritual ministry, with more opportunities. 18 and 19, similar situation. A second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. Not as much as the the 10, not a 1,000% increase, but a 500% increase is still nothing to sneeze at. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. And so we see these two, these two come and they have been faithful and they have been diligent. It would have taken a lot of concerted, dedicated effort to turn one mina into more in this culture especially in a culture where you, you didn't, um, there were certain business practices that were prohibited, and so you had to trade and do different things. But they were able to make it done because they were dedicated to the master's business. They were dedicated to what he wanted them to do. And so because they both proved their faithfulness, the master could trust them with more. There's a rabbinic proverb that, that is ancient, but it really affirms this principle Run to fulfill the lightest duty, even as the weightiest. For the reward of a duty done is a duty to be done. Catch that? You know, it's like like many Proverbs. I'm like, what? Let me read it again. Run to fulfill the lightest duty, even as the weightiest. So take the small tasks just as important as the big task. For the reward of a duty done, speaking of the light duty, the reward is a duty to be done, a greater responsibility. Now, now we might think, especially if we think of the couch potato story, why do I want more responsibility? 
You know, if I, if I tell my kids, if you do what I've asked, I'm going to have so many more chores for you, it's going to be awesome. That's not the greatest motivation for my kids, right? They're like, what? I, I really wanted to sleep in today, Dad, or whatever it is. And that whole couch potato thing, I'm aspiring to that. Um, but spiritually, if we think about the significance and the purpose that goes with doing God's work, the reward of doing God's work in heaven, the reward even here on earth of seeing lives changed and seeing disciples made, this is an incredible opportunity to do something significant with our lives and not waste them on a couch. And so some here will faithfully do the master's work. So we have two groups of people so far. The first group that doesn't even want the nobleman to be king. They reject him outright. The second group that accepts his rule and, and just says, yes, I'm, I'm all in. I'm wholehearted after you. But then we have a third group that, that Jesus talks about in verses 20 to 26. Some who look like servants will ignore the master's business and chase their own self-interests. Let me repeat that. Some who look like servants will ignore the master's business and chase their own self-interests. So in verse 20, we see this, this third person coming up. And it's one of the servants that's used as an example of this third group. Then another comes saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Handkerchief was probably the scarf they used from the, the heat and the, the sand over their mouth. And he had taken it and put, it, put the mina in a handkerchief, put, hid it somewhere, and he gave it back. And he said, for I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. And so the servant did nothing with it. It didn't take a lot of work to wrap it in a cloth and hide it and forget about it for months until the nobleman came back. And he went on with his life, his responsibilities, and did what he wanted during this time. He disobeyed. What was the command? Engage in my business. It wasn't just give me my mina back. It was engage in business. And he disobeyed. He didn't bother with the king's business. He didn't care about the king's business. He didn't even meet the minimum standards of the time for safety because you weren't supposed to wrap money up in a cloth and put it somewhere in your house. You were to at least bury it to keep it safe. This servant, if he was a true servant, took the easy way out and said, I'm going to do the least amount required. I've got my servanthood. I've said I obey the master. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And then he gives this description of the master, which we know from the story and we know of Jesus isn't even true. He has a false description. I was afraid of you. I know you're a severe man. You know, you're harsh on us. You you demand results. You, You want us to obey you. How dare you? You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And some think maybe he's saying, you know, if I did earn more, you're just going to take it anyway. So what's the value to me? You're you're, you're just going to take the profit. So, hey, it's the same to me if I just give it back to you. This is an evil, evil man. An evil servant. I would agree with the scholars that would argue that this man probably wasn't a believer. Probably wasn't a follower of Christ. He was a false servant that was just going through the motions and just acting. It's interesting to look at at, um, 
his description of God. And, and if, you, if we look at his response, we see a couple different things about him. One is he probably had a very legalistic view of God and what it meant to follow God. From this description, you can easily fall into this legalistic view of God's just waiting there with a big hammer. He's going to hammer me if I ever get it wrong. So I have to go through every little thing and get it right because that's how I please the master. And he didn't. And, And so he gives this description that he had fallen into that is false and let fear stop him. Let fear completely stop him. Now we know from, you know from Luke that we've talked about the Pharisees, and this is part of what the religious leaders of the day were like. And, and so one author said he represents the worst side of Jewish religion of his day, a side that thought it had to obey God at any cost, and that the smallest detail of the law had to be followed to earn his favor. Otherwise, God would become the angry judge, throw the book at them, and punish them beyond imagination. And that is the natural outcome of a legalistic religion. A legalistic religion changes God from a gracious redeemer that wants to have a relationship with us and wants to give us a full life to an angry God that arbitrarily imposes his law and his will on us and and maybe even hopes we don't follow it so he can have the joy of punishing us. And, And it's a picture of a tyrant and legalism always ends up there to a tyrannical God who can't have relationship with us. And that is not Christianity. That is not what it means to follow God. God gave us his instructions because he made us and wants us to have a full and meaningful life. And this is the best way to it. You know, my car says unleaded fuel only. If I say, you know what, I really like diesel. That, that, that instruction is so constraining anyway. How dare, the car companies, they are, they are trying to control me. How dare they? If I, if I then fill my tank with diesel, now I can do that. I can choose to do that, but I hear that's not good for a regular engine. Right? Those of you that, yeah, some of you are like, oh, that engine's gone. Um, and and I, I thought about that on vacation as my brother and dad were getting diesel everywhere, and I'm like, no, no, I have to get regular. And, and, and the, God's instructions are for our good, for our joy, because he loves us. But this man had turned what the master said and and had this idea of the master that was just evil, that was just legalistic. So so he he probably was struggling with some legalistic views of of religion, but also a self-centered view. I want to do what I want to do. That's his business. It's not my business. And he wasted the opportunity. So in verses 22 and 23, we begin to see, and on, we begin to see the result And the result is a condemnation and removal of what the master gave and removal of those responsibilities. 22, he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. And so he's about to use his own words and show how even his own logic is false. He's not saying that he really is this way. But he's saying, he's using what the, the servant said that said, even if you believed that, you would have acted differently. He said, you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at coming I might have collected it with interest? Why didn't you at least use my money to get something back? Be about my business in a little bit that you didn't even have to do anything for. And he calls him on it. He said, if what you're saying is true, 
If that was really your reason, you would have at least done this. And you didn't. And you didn't. You know, when those of you with kids, you have to decipher their statements and see if they're true, right? Sometimes. Because sometimes they, they, they fudge a little bit. And so sometimes we'll have like a whole bunch of vegetables on the plate. And invariably someone might say, I'm full. I'm full. And so, okay, how do you figure that out? One of the ways is, hey, we're going to have some ice cream now. It is amazing how fullness goes away when ice cream comes. And, and Susie or I will look at the kids and say, so, so you weren't really full, were you? And we saved your vegetables for you. <laughs> and that'll happen before ice cream. <laughs> and, you know, we hear the argument, well, ice cream fits in the cracks. <laughs> Who raised these kids? Goodness. Um, <laughs> but Jesus is using their own words like we would. If you're full, then you wouldn't want ice cream. Well, if you thought this, then you would have at least invested and gotten something back. But you didn't. And so he is condemning this man with his own words. Verse 24, And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And so we see the result is that Jesus is going to take the responsibility and take what was given away from him and give to the one that was faithful. Now, now keep in mind the very next verse, And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. And they're basically saying, That's not fair. That's not, and this is, this is, the objection of fairness is ridiculous here. This is right up there with giving participation awards. But in, in, because they're like, oh no, he exists. He should still get to keep his stuff. No, it is based on merit. It is based on who's responsible. We went away for vacation for a few weeks and we got a house sitter for our house. Now, one of the things we thought through was who would be faithful and responsible with our house, Right? As we're looking at people, we don't take the one that has proven no responsibility and has parties all the time and can't even keep a house up. That's not who we pick to house it. We know this. We're discerning in this way, but we're mad when Jesus does the same thing. No, he says, if you're not faithful with the little things, I can't trust you with more. And in fact, I'm going to take that from you until you're faithful and I'm going to give it to the one who is faithful. This is right. It makes sense. And Jesus is saying, earn, earn the responsibilities, earn the rewards by being about my business. It actually isn't hard. It takes a change in focus. Verse 26, Jesus explains it. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And don't think of money here. Think of responsibility and faithfulness. To everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And there's a principle here that if we're, if we're not moving forward, if we're not serving God, then we're moving backwards. There is no standing still. It's use it or lose it. And so if we're not dedicating our heart and centering our lives around Christ and his work, then we are falling backwards because to not do that is to sinfully dedicate it to self and to be about ourself. There is no middle ground. You can't coast in Christianity. Coasting means falling backwards. If any of you have done any rowing on a, a stream or a river or swimming on a, on a river, while you're rowing, you can make headway, right? But as soon as you stop, 
You just stay nicely in the same spot. No. The current takes you backwards. And that's what happens. And that's why I'm so passionate about are we living for God's glory? Are our lives centered around Him? Is this the core of who we are? Because if it isn't, you will fall into sin and you will fall backwards and Satan will just feast on you. It is that important to make Christ and His work the center of our lives. And Jesus says that. He says that. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So the result for this group is condemnation and removal of what the Master gave. Removal of the responsibilities. And then we get to verse 27 and just the sobering conclusion of 27 where he says the result of that first group. Remember, we have the group that just doesn't even want Jesus as king. The second group that is all in and serving God. And then we have this third group that is just sort of pretending and saying, yeah, I'm a servant, but I'm not going to do what God wants me to do. I'm not going to be about his business. He goes back to that first group that reject Jesus. And in verse 27, and and it's hard to leave you with this verse in our text this morning because it's not the prettiest verse, but it's in the word. But as for these enemies of mine, the first group, who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. And I'm not going to water down the wording. The result is death. The result is eternal judgment for those that don't follow Christ. And really, would Christ, actually, would Christ be loving if he didn't tell us that? If that was the consequence of not following him and he didn't word it this strongly, what kind of God is that? No, he's like, this is the outcome. If you don't follow me, if you reject me as king, your outcome is eternal death in in the pit of hell. And he's reminding them of that, especially to the the leaders that had rejected him, that were about to, to lead the cries, crucify him, crucify him, as they walked into town. This is sobering. But again, he rips this out of the headlines because when a king would get his kingdom, he would come back and he would kill off any opposition. And it's not that that's the way Jesus is doing it, but he's using an example from from what they know to say, "When, when my kingdom comes back, evil will be wiped out. And that includes every person that doesn't follow me. The good news, the good news is that every person that does follow him will be in the kingdom with the king. He has a free invitation for anyone that will accept his work on the cross that he's about to go up and do. For anyone that will give their life to him and say, you are my king, you are my Lord. That is all it takes to be part of the kingdom and avoid this. So this isn't arbitrary. Jesus is doing everything he can to give us another way, including giving his life. But if people still reject and willfully decide not to follow Christ, they are choosing their, their judgment. They're choosing their enemies and they will be crushed. Three different groups. Three different results. And our question today is which group are we? Which group are we? And so we have some takeaways that really deal with each of the groups. But am I the person that is still rejecting Christ and keeping him at, at, at arm's length? And if you're here this morning and that's you, I'm glad you're here this morning to hear the good news, to hear what Jesus is doing for you, has done for you. There are people here this morning that are just all in 
And it is a joy to serve with you and to watch you serve and to watch people changed for Christ and disciples made. And then undoubtedly, we have people here that are going through the motions, that are sitting here. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but our lives are dedicated to self and what we want rather than what the master wants and being about his business. So four takeaways, just as we we end the text. The first, and, and some of these are just summaries of what we've already talked about. The first, this parable reminds us Jesus is still coming. The king will return. It reminds us that Jesus is still coming. And whenever I think of remembering that Jesus is coming, I always think of two things. Number one, it gives hope. It gives hope. I can get through anything here because I know this isn't it. And, and, and the junk of a Genesis 3 fallen world, I can get through that because the king is coming. And this is going to end. So it gives hope and an ability to go on. The second thing I mentioned already, it brings accountability. It could be today. It could be this afternoon we're standing before the throne of God answering for our lives. And that brings accountability for me. That, that, that says, okay, I need to be about the master's business. That's the first takeaway. Second takeaway, Jesus makes clear what we should be doing while we wait for his return. Engage in the master's business. And this just summarizes everything I've talked about, but it summarizes really how he deals with, with the, the, second, the last two groups especially. But that is our job right now. That is why we haven't been called home to heaven. We are to be about Christ's purpose. We're about to be his mission with whatever he has given us. We're to make disciples. As the verse right before this said, we're to seek and to save the lost. That's why you have been saved, village. It's not just so you can live a comfortable couch potato Christian life and say, yeah, I'm saved. It is to do the work of the Savior. In Ephesians 2.10, we read, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk, with, walk in them. We're created for, the, for his work. We've been saved for his work. Now, this concept, I think, is really hard in our culture today. This is really hard when you see other people around you and friends around you pursuing other things. Maybe they, they have the nicer toys or the nicer car or the bigger house because of choices they've made. And it is really hard not to look at that and say, why can't that be me? Because a life that is sold out for the Savior is going to make some sacrifices in those areas. It's, it's going to make some sacrifices that, that other people in this world aren't making. And it is hard to see that. I was reading one survey that talked about uh, culture today, and it said 80% of Americans believe enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. Think about that. 80% of Americans believe enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life. Not a goal, not one goal, but the highest goal in life. You know, some of the evidences of that, I, I get to hear a lot of surveys of churches and we're seeing um, church attendance. That we, we still have the same number of people going to church, but what it means to be a regular attender has changed. In, in this survey, the number of practicing Christians who say they're Christians sold out for God who go to church at least once a month is 60%. And so we've changed what it means to be sold out for God. We've changed what it means to order our lives around God because enjoying ourselves is the highest priority. 
That's the framework we live in, guys. That's the air we breathe when we walk out these doors. That's the commercials we watch. That's what, what we hear at work tomorrow or, or Tuesday. Tomorrow's a holiday. So how do you fight that? How do we order our lives to be about the master's business when the world is saying it's about enjoying yourself? This is the third group, the guy that just hid the mina in the handkerchief. No, no, I don't want to take time to do that. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. And that's a, that's a takeaway verse for me out of this topic. Making the best use of your time because the days are evil. We have a short amount of time to make a difference for the king. And that's the difference that lasts. The jet ski or the latest toy or the, the house, none of that's going to last in 50 years. But when we stand before our Savior... If we want to hear, well done, done, good and faithful servant, we'll be finding ways to be dedicated to the, to the mission. Now, I'm not saying having stuff is bad, and I'm not saying go sell all your stuff, but are we using it all for the kingdom? Are we generous people? Are we using what we have to help reach our neighbors or to bring others into the kingdom, encourage other church members? Or is it about being a couch potato? which sounds like a lot of fun. But I'm not sure it was all that fun after 72 hours <laughs> sitting in that recliner. I need to move on. Takeaway number three. Be assured that God rewards faithfulness. This is also a comfort and a promise that God will notice what we do. He will notice the work we put in for the game. We can be assured that he will reward faithfulness. I'm not talking health and wealth. I'm not expecting three jets. You know, the, like we talked, joked about one week about the Pastor Ron Foundation. No, that, this isn't where our rewards come. Our rewards come in, in, in eternity. But God will reward faithfulness. Be faithful in the small tasks because there are no small tasks to God. They are all part of his plan. They are all part of reaching a world for him. And when I think of being assured that God rewards faithfulness, that means I'm going to work in my task where I'm at. I, I love the phrase. I know there's a book with this title, Bloom Where You're Planted. We can get so caught up into, I wish I had this, or I wish I was here, that, that we don't just minister where we're at and go all in where we're at. These servants, they just were called in and given Amina and said, I don't care where you're at in life. Here's what you're going to do. You know, I got caught up in this when I was becoming a pastor. Some of you, you know my past, and I wasn't intending to be a pastor. That's not where I got my undergrad degrees, and I was working in a computer field. And I had a plan, and I told God, tell you what, I'm going to serve you more when my business gets to this income level. And God laughed. Well, I don't know that he did, but I think he did from the circumstances that followed that. And God was saying, no, 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 you're, you're saying you're going to wait to do more for me until these things are met, until you have this. For me, it was until I have financial security. And God just ripped all that away and said, no, why don't you serve me now? Now's good. And changed the whole direction of my life. 
and my family's life. Can we bloom where we're planted? Can we serve God here? He's given you opportunities this week to disciple, to share the gospel. He's given you what you need to do it. The question is, are we going to? Are we going to be dedicated to take the mina and turn it into tin, or have we hidden it away because we have better things to do with our time? And finally, the fourth takeaway, which I already mentioned, those who reject Jesus will face eternal judgment. Not may, not might, those who reject Jesus will face eternal judgment. And so I plead with you, if you're in that category that is exploring Christianity and you're not sure you want to give your heart to Jesus, today's the day. Come talk to me. I'll answer questions. I'll answer questions all day if you want. But do business with Christ and move from that group to the group that's all in, that's saying, I'm going to be about my master's business. Little, little parable. Right as Jesus is about to go up to Jerusalem. But it reorders our thinking into how he wants us to think. We'd like to move into a time of the Lord's Supper this morning. And it's just so appropriate as we are beginning Jesus, with Jesus' journey to Jerusalem beginning his journey to bring salvation to us. And then we hear from this story a difference between those that reject and accept. It's so, so amazing that we can celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. And we can remember what he's done. And this is our commitment this morning to remember, not just with our head, but to remember with our actions that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. He brought forgiveness. He brought me into his kingdom now so I can live for him until his kingdom fully comes. And so as we take it, I invite you to be thinking in your hearts and praying in your hearts, Lord, how can I be more about your business? How can I be more dedicated to accomplishing what you would like accomplished today? Because that is an act of remembering what he's done, honoring what he's done. We'll take the the crackers, which represent the body of Christ that he willingly gave on the cross that was broken on our behalf, the pain and the suffering. The juice represents the blood of Christ, the blood that was spilled in my place as a payment for my sin so I don't have to have eternal death, so I don't have to be part of that group. This is an opportunity to honor what God has done. Bow your heads with me. Lord God, just right before we take the bowl, We want to pause and make sure we're right with you. Lord, if if there's any unconfessed sin, Lord, help us to confess that right now and deal with you because your blood is paid for it. Lord, if we have been living lives that are more about us and with a view of you that is false, help us to confess that right now. I'm going to be working towards towards the master's mission. Lord, challenge us to be radically radically different to serve you in every way we can. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice so I don't have to. Thank you for the blood that was spilt in my place. Thank you for what you endured willingly because you loved us and wanted to bring salvation for us. May we live in a way that honors that. In your name, amen.